Amen. All right, friends, this is the time in the service when we open the scriptures and read from them and interpret them with one another and try to understand what God is saying to us today through God's word. We are continuing in our series for September. It's called Made for This, and we are talking about the way in which God created us, constituted us, that part of what it means to be human is to need relationships, not only with God and also with God's creation, but with one another as human beings. And the best place we know to live out, the best environment for us to live out those relationships in our ministry is through our life groups. And so this is one extended conversation, one extended invitation for you to get in a life group and appreciate just what God can do in your life in the midst of that experience. We're going to read this morning from Philippians, so if you have your Bible, open it up if you would and turn to chapter 1. If you don't, we've got it on the screen for you as well, so you can follow along as I read. Listen now for the Word of God. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. The name of the sermon today is Retiring Retirement. And my goal is to try to convince you to think a particular way about our golden years, about the retirement, and to invite you to stop buying the retirement fantasy that has been sold to us out there in the world and instead to dream a big dream for God. Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I want to tell you about a couple of our Timberlake saints today. Uh, One is a man named Gene Farley. Uh, Gene died in December of 2016. Some of you will remember him well and fondly. Uh, Gene served honorably in the Army National Guard and then gave his career for the credit unions in Virginia and uh, had a wonderful leadership in credit unions and in banking. Gene was a member of this church for 53 years, which is awesome to me because I haven't even lived that many years yet, but he was active in this church for 53 years. Uh, And the thing I appreciate most about Gene today as we're having this conversation is that as he got into his senior years uh, at a time in his life when he could have spent all of his money and time and resources on himself, and we would have said, you know what, he earned it. He earned it. He didn't do that. He actually continued to serve others the way Jesus had served him. And so uh, Gene was a, a worship leader in this church, and he sang in the choir, and he was the chairman of the church council, and he was active with the Boy Scouts. Gene cared for widows in this community, and when it snowed, he would call widows and check on them to make sure that they were okay and, and faring okay in the storm. Uh, Gene helped establish Heart Havens here in Lynchburg, which is a home for adults with developmental disabilities. Uh, Gene was active in a life group. Gene was loving and spending time with his grandchildren, and the list goes on and on of the contributions that he made in his retirement to the ministry of this church and to the welfare of the people in this community. And so I'm thankful today for Gene. I'm also thankful for another one of our Timberlake Saints. Her name is Ruby Vire. Ruby Vire, our sister, died back in January of this year. She was married to Neil for almost 56 years. Is that right, Neil? Yeah, almost 56 years. Uh, They have four wonderful children and 14 grandchildren, many of whom are sitting right here. There's enough. They fill up two whole pews in the sanctuary. Uh, Ruby is a dear lady to us, and uh, one of the things I love most about Ruby 
especially on a day like this, is when she got in her senior years, she continued to pour herself out for the people in her life, her family and her friends and her neighbors. And so Ruby played music. She was an accomplished organist. Some of you remember she played organ in this church for a long time. Uh, but she also played other places and, and other opportunities. So she played for Bible schools and for children's programs. Uh, she played at local churches when they needed a substitute. She played for weddings and for funerals, except when they tried to pay her for playing, she would endorse the check and just put it right back in the offering plate and give it back to the ministry of the church. Ruby cared for her whole family, and uh, she especially cared for her mother in her mother's last years. Uh, she was the, that intense kind of caregiving person for her mom um, in the last four years of her mother's life. Uh, but I think Ruby's best love was her grandkids. She loved her grandkids most of all, and she rarely missed sporting events and concerts and graduations. She was there with them. There's a great picture I want to show you of Ruby and her family um, I hope you can appreciate it from where you're sitting. This is the Vire family at Christmas time, one of those crazy photos. And Ruby's there in the center, and uh, she's choking her husband with two hands. Yeah, in love, in love, of course, right? So why is it that we talk about Ruby and Jean on a day like this? You know, there's lots of saints who've gone before us, men and women and children, and, and many wonderful examples of the life of Christ that we have been given by God's grace uh, you know, these are people who are devoted to this community and to their families and to the gospel of Jesus. Um, and, you know, thinking about Ruby's life and Jean's life, it occurs to me they, they had other similarities. They, they also got really sick at the end of their lives to the point it was uncomfortable and it was unpleasant. And they hurt and, and we hurt for them. Uh, they were both in their 80s when they died. And, and even though they lived a long life, perhaps we weren't really ready for them to die. We wanted more days. We wanted more years with them. And so my question to you, friends, as we reflect on their lives and the lives of others like them, my question to you is this. Uh, is this a tragedy? Are the deaths of Ruby Vire and Jean Farley tragic? And the answer is no. No, I'll tell you what a tragedy looks like. This is from Reader's Digest. It was quoted by a preacher named John Piper. This is what a tragedy looks like. A married couple named Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast. He was 59 and she was 51, and now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they have cocktail parties at their sprawling estate. They play softball and they collect seashells. Friends, that is a tragedy. That is a tragedy. That is one version of the American retirement fantasy, and billions of dollars are spent every year. You know this, right? Billions of dollars are spent every year to try to get you to buy it, and I'm pleading with you today, don't buy it. Don't buy that version of the dream. Instead, dream a dream for God. See what God would have you do with your last days and years of your life. See if you might pattern your life after the example of Ruby and of Jean, who continued to pour themselves out into the lives of others. You see, friends, there will be a day, maybe soon or maybe not for a long time, but there will be a day when you and I stand before our Creator and we will give an account for our lives, and we will show God all that we have made with what God has given us, and who wants to stand before the Lord on that day and say, Lord, here's my seashell collection, and did you see my mansion, how big it is, how nice it is, and, and I hit a lot of doubles on the softball field, aren't you proud of me? 
I wonder if we would have something else, something different to show to God on that day. I wonder if in the meantime, if we are dying to ourselves so that we can live to Christ, or are we simply dead? Friends, retirement from work is beautiful, isn't it? Retirement from work is a great thing, and some of you are there, and you are living it up, and I'm so pleased for you, and I'm just a little bit envious of you on certain days. Retirement from work is a beautiful thing. Retirement from faith is not. Retirement from work, see, retirement from work means time with your family, time with your grandkids, the occasion to travel, a a chance to rest. Retirement from work means you're now sort of free to invest yourself in the lives of others without some real particular stipulations about what you do with yourself 40 hours a week. You've got freedom. But see, retirement from faith, on the other hand, friends, retirement from faith is a tragedy. Retirement from faith means lives that had so much potential for meaning and for impact are cut short and sold out for some seashell-collecting version, some counterfeit version of the real thing that God wants to give to you and to me. You see, according to the Scriptures, there is no such thing as retirement from faith. There is no such thing as, I have arrived. There's no such thing as I'm finished praying, I'm finished studying the scripture, I'm finished with the mission. There's no such thing. Think about it. Why would Jesus ask us to serve others all our lives until we reach some magical age of 65, at which point now we are to be served? That doesn't make any sense. Oh, you know, you guys do the work of the kingdom. That's okay. I'll just put my feet up and drink pina coladas for the next 20 years. Uh, Well, you know, I did my time in church leadership. You know, I I paid my dues. It's time for someone else to step up, buddy. Well, I I was in a life group. Yeah, I did that one time, and so I'm I'm finished now. Well, yes, I read the Bible. I read it cover to cover, so I'm assuming I'm done with the Bible reading part of my life. Friends, for the followers of Jesus, there is no such thing as retirement from faith, and it is for this reason, because God is not finished with you yet. God is not finished with you yet. When Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, this is the message he's trying to get across to them. And I want you to look at it with me again. This is chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this. What is that? That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is Paul's prayer for the people at Philippi. This is Paul's prayer for all of us, by extension, who now have received this letter in the Scriptures. And this is his prayer, friends, that the God who began a good work in you will carry it on until it is finished until it is completed in the day of Christ Jesus. I want you to notice a few things that Paul is saying here. First, God is doing a good work in you. The Holy Spirit is moving in your life. And I would dare say that if you took inventory of your life today and you looked backwards, say six months or a year or ten years, you would be able to identify changes that God has brought about in your life for the good that could not have happened without the grace of God. Is that right? Can anybody here give a testimony? Let me tell you what God has done in my life. 
You see, God is not finished with you yet. The second thing I want you to notice, this is the work of God. It's that he who began a good work. That means God, God began this good work in you. Friends, this is not our own work. This is what God can do in us and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the third thing I want you to notice is when it is finished, it's not finished today, it is finished in the day of Christ Jesus. You see, we live in the between times, don't we? We live in the time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so on Christmas, we remember that Jesus was born as a baby in a manger, and that is the first coming of Christ. But during Advent, during December, we also look forward to that second coming, that Jesus is coming back again. And so in the meantime, God is at work in our lives. God is moving in us. The work that he has started, he is going to bring to completion when Jesus comes back again, which means, friends, God is not finished with you yet. God is not finished with you yet. Now, that's good news, isn't it? Because when we look in the mirror, we see a lot of beautiful things, but sometimes we also see those flaws, don't we? We see the things about us that need to change. And so the good news for today is God is still working on those things in you. God is working to transform your life. And thank God, because who we are now is not who we always have been, nor is it who we always will be. God is not finished with you yet. So when we think about retirement, some of you say, yes, I'm at retirement, I'm there. Some of you, maybe it's a little ways off. Someone said to me at the end of the last service, six months, Pastor, six months to go and until I get my retirement, and they were so excited about it. For some of us, retirement feels like a long way away, I'll be honest. And so this message is for you, no matter where you are on this journey, God is not finished with you yet. If you have breath inside you, God is not finished with you yet. The Sunday before last, I asked you to give me some feedback about the kind of things that we need to be talking about as a church as I go away this week to prepare sermons for 2019. And so many of you very dutifully, very helpfully filled out these uh, surveys on a piece of paper and you turned it in to me. And uh, I had offered you about nine different topics that you could circle and say, yes, this is something I'm interested in hearing. And there's topics like doubt and marriage and anxiety and things like that. Well, my favorite survey, my absolute favorite that one of you turned in, this person had circled sex. That was one of the choices. This person had circled sex. And next to uh, the word sex, this person had written over 70. (laughs) Sex over 70. So first of all, bravo, well done, well done. And secondly, thank you. Uh, You know, as we think about what is coming in life for us, that's something we can aspire to, isn't it? Something we have to look forward to. Sex over 70. I can't promise that a lot of the sermons next year will be about sex over 70. Maybe some of them. I don't know, once a month probably at the most. But um, (laughs) I'm grateful. In all sincerity, um, let me ask you to pray for me uh, this week as I go away to think about these things. Uh, My wife and I are going to leave tonight, and then we'll come back Thursday And um, this time for me is a time of prayer and discernment, and I want to ask you to pray that God would make it abundantly clear what it is we need to hear about in the coming year as a church and what God has for us. And so uh, please be in prayer for us. We'll leave tonight, come back Thursday, and I'll, I'll see you next Sunday. But this is a really important week for me and hopefully for us 
in this sense. Okay, back to our main point. God is not finished with you yet, friends. When it comes to following Jesus, at least this side of heaven, there's no such thing as all done. And there is a theological word that we give to this idea, and we call it sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. Ready? Sanctification. Very good. Sanctification is this idea that the Scripture gives us about our journey toward becoming more like Jesus. And Paul puts it like this in a different one of his letters. This is Romans chapter 6. Paul says this, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God instead, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. Now, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the fruit of our life with God. It is the work of God's grace inside of us that makes us become more like Jesus, that helps us to decrease in sin and increase in love so that we become slaves not to sin but to Jesus instead. How many of you have noticed that we are slaves as human beings? We are slaves to one thing or another. Have you noticed that? We are slaves to something or someone, friends. There's no, no question about it. The only question is, what or whom will we be slaves to? And so the scriptures invite us to repent of our sin, to reject sin, and instead cling to Jesus in that way. And so this is what sanctification is about. Sanctification means holiness. Sanctification means holiness. The scriptures are clear that God is holy, that God is other, that God is set apart, that God is set above us. God's ways are higher than our ways. In fact, the Hebrew people in the Old Testament understood that God was so holy that they could not even look directly at God face to face. Uh, it would be like trying to stand next to the sun. Right, you would simply burn up and cease to exist in that moment because God's holiness is so bright and, and so powerful, we cannot encounter God that close. Now, in God's mercy, God has provided for us and not left us in our sinful lives, left us to death and condemnation. God has provided a way for us to be able to stand in God's presence, to be reconciled to God, and that way, his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus is the way that we can go in this journey of coming closer to God, of having the image of God restored in us, becoming more and more like Jesus. And this journey from sin to sanctification, uh, from being, excuse me, from sin to righteousness, from being far away from God to being near to God, from uh, being... Uh, stuck in sin and in a life of our own making and our own habits, this journey toward God we call sanctification. This is the result of the grace of God in our lives. This is the function, this is the movement of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me so far? Yes? Okay, a few nods. All right. If you're not, just hang in there. I promise this is going to make sense eventually. Sanctification points to the reality that life is a journey. When you open this book, it gives you lots of different ways of thinking about the Christian life. So it talks about life as a battle, right? It talks about it as a test. It talks about life as a conversation or a song that you sing. But my favorite metaphor for the Christian life that is in this book is a journey, that we are on our way somewhere. We are walking somewhere together with Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, we're all like the prodigal son. 
You know the story of the prodigal son. He, he took his uh, father's inheritance and he ran away from home and he wasted all of it and he realized that he needed to go back home again and ask for his father's forgiveness. And so there's the father standing on the porch waiting with open arms ready to receive his child back home again. And so this journey of sanctification is a journey from being lost to being found. It's a journey from unrighteousness to righteousness. It's a journey home to God again. And Jesus is the way. He is the way that we can come back home again. Now, there's another metaphor that's not found in the Scriptures per se, but it's part of our uh, Christian tradition, especially in the Wesleyan movement. And this metaphor is a house. I want to use the image of a house to talk with you about the grace of God and how we understand our relationship with God as we grow in our faith. So this comes from John Wesley, and he understood, uh, John Wesley, who founded the Wesleyan movement, of which we are a part, uh, he understood God's grace operates in some very particular ways. And he said, first of all, uh, we begin life on the porch. So if you imagine a house, and there's the porch, and we are all on the porch. I know it doesn't look like it could hold all of us, but trust me, it can. Okay, the, the proverbial porch of God's grace, this is God's prevenient grace. Prevenient means the grace that comes before. So that's the grace that comes before you even knew who God was. That's the grace that comes before you even existed on this earth. God loved you and had a plan for you, and everyone is on the porch. No one is off the porch because God loves everyone, and God desires a relationship with everyone. You make sense? This makes sense? You with me? Okay. Now, some people stay on the porch. Some people stay on the porch because they reject the love of God. They decline the offer to follow Jesus, but they're not kicked off the porch. They're still on the porch. God still loves them. There is an opportunity for them to accept the grace of God. And those who do accept the grace of God, who repent of their sin and say yes to following Jesus, they walk through the doorway, which is known as justifying grace. So those who accept the grace of God are justified. They are counted as righteous. They are put back into right relationship with God. You see, sin separates us from God. The grace of Jesus Christ reconnects and reconciles us to God. And that's represented at, as the door. Now, what do you notice about the door? Say it louder. Yes, okay, it's red, right? Also, more importantly, it's open. The door is open, right? For all you have to do is walk through. The invitation is there for all people to come in relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enters in, he shall be saved, and she shall be saved. Jesus is the door. He is the way into faith. Now, depending on who you ask, some preachers, some, pa uh, some pastors, some churches will tell you that's the deal. Like, that's the goal. That's the finish line. Just get through the door, and, and you're good to go. When I was in college, there was a campus ministry that was really popular on our college campus. And uh, every summer, the students from that campus ministry would go to the beach. And they would go to the beach and do beach ministry. They would tell people about Jesus. And they would kind of keep track of how many people they had talked to. And they would write it down and write down the people's names. And especially those people who got saved, who had a salvation experience. They would keep track. And they came back from the beach and they would say, hey, man, we, we got 20 people saved at the beach this summer. As if that was the it. Like, that, that's it. They're finished, they're done, and now we can celebrate, yes, and sort of move on and think about the next thing. <clears throat> Friends, in our Wesleyan understanding of these things, salvation is actually not an ending, it is a beginning. 
You see, when you repent of your sin, when you receive the grace of Jesus Christ, when you come up here and get baptized at the baptismal font, that is the start of a relationship with God. So I'm not criticizing those who go to the beach and tell people about Jesus. That's awesome. And if God calls you to do that, you should do that. What I'm saying is there needs to be a next step. There needs to be something else, something that comes after. Remember what we read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, The God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The name that we give to this next step, the theological term that we use for this ongoing journey is sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. sanctification. In the house of faith, sanctification is represented by all the rooms of the house, okay? So you start on the porch with prevenient grace, you walk through the door of justifying grace, you explore the rest of the house through the journey of sanctification. So the life of faith is kind of like walking into a house where you've never been before, and you go into each room of the house, and in every room you discover something new and something beautiful, If you're like me, your journey of faith has been every day, every year, God shows you something new, something about yourself, something about God's self, and the mystery of God's love for us. And I dare say, friends, you could spend a lifetime exploring the mysteries of God and still never taste all of who God is, right? And still never understand all of the scriptures that God has for us because God is a mystery and because God is so big, we can never possibly hope to understand all of who God is, at least this side of heaven. And yet this is a journey that we go on together, this journey of sanctification. I want to suggest to you, friends, that's a gift that God has given us, the gift of learning and of discovery and of growth and of going deeper and of going higher day after day after day. Sanctification means God is not finished with you yet. God is continuing to do a good work in your life. So let's say, just for sake of argument, Let's say that you are persuaded today by what I'm saying. Okay, Pastor Brad's got a good point. Yeah, retirement from work is good. Retirement from faith, not good. Got it. Sanctification is the journey. Uh, Becoming more like Jesus. Yes, okay, I want to be on that journey. Where do I go to participate in this? Friends, the best thing that you can do, in addition to this that we're doing right now, is to get into a life group. Sanctification happens when you gather in a room with brothers and sisters, and you talk about your life, and they talk about their life, and you open the scripture together, and you pray together, and something incredible happens in which you grow in your faith, and you become the kind of person that God is calling you to be. But you see, we cannot do it by ourselves, can we? How many of you know that human beings are capable of infinite self-deception, that we are great at fooling ourselves and thinking we are better off than we are, that we're stronger than we are, But when we go in a group and you confess your sin and you tell what it is you're struggling with, you realize, oh, okay, God still loves me and God forgives me. And you know what else? Not only that, I'm not the only one. There's other people in this room who have the same kind of struggles that I have and who need the same kind of help that I need. And maybe they can help me and I can help them. And together, by the grace of God, we can be all that God has called us to be. Now, John Wesley had a name for that also. He called it social holiness. Social holiness is the idea that I need you and you need me, and none of us can be all that God has called us to be without one another. Now, personal holiness means you get your Bible and you go in your quiet prayer closet and you read your Bible and you pray all by yourself and you talk to God 
uh, your heavenly Father. That's personal holiness. But personal holiness, it needs to be paired up with social holiness in which our relationships help us to become who God has called us to be. Friends, this is the invitation. This is the invitation to come to be a part of this journey of sanctification and to realize what good news it is that God is not finished with you yet.